The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning. It's Monday morning on the Michael Reed Show. This morning, the price of a three-bedroom semi-D home nationally has breached the 300,000 mark for the first time since 2007 as prices for homes outside the capital and major cities soar. There are around 1,300 premature deaths in Ireland every year due to poor air quality. The latest EPA report shows burning solid fuel in homes and nitrogen dioxide, mainly from road traffic, are the main threats. Nursing Homes Ireland is calling on the government to protect long-term residential care services by applying the same principles it applies to the political system to ensure proportional provision is in place. Sinn Féin announced its alternative health care budget with proposals that it could reduce the cost of associated uh, associated with healthcare and deliver a universal health system and more than 1,700 childcare providers to strike for three days this week. Don't forget, you can contact us if you wish to do so on WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael.lmfm.ie. First this morning, more than 1,700 childcare providers will strike for the three days this week. The new system introduced last year for the funding of childcare has failed providers and has prompted them to take the action. Elaine Dunn is chairperson of the Federation of Early Childcare Childhood Providers and joins us this morning. Elaine, thanks for joining us. Um, Perhaps first off, to clear up some confusion here, you no doubt listened to what Minister for Children Roderick O'Gorman had to say over the weekend in relation to this uh, action. But for the benefit of our listeners, I'm just going to give them a couple of quotes that he said on the radio. He said, we've better pay for staff. We've cut the number of closures of childcare centres and we've cut the cost to parents. There's a lot of work to do and I absolutely recognise that but we've made great steps forward in the last three years and I want to continue that and I'll be using the budget negotiations as a basis for further investment. Somebody's not given us the full picture here, Elaine. Who is it? Well, it's certainly not us on the ground because, look, you w- we wouldn't be closing our doors on that parents if it wasn't a problem and that's nationwide, you know. Um, we're looking at uh, a lot of us are stuck in a fee freeze dating back to 2017 and if you know anything that's the same price as it was in 2017 I'd love to know because uh, the small and medium services this is why they're in so much trouble and they're closing permanently um, I would dispute absolutely dispute um, his comment about um, the, the closures being less than they have been in five years we know that in, in North Dublin alone um, there were 21 closures this year and those 21 services are still listed up on the Tusla website. We know six services in Minister O'Gorman's own constituency that are still up on the Tusla website that closed last year. And we know 56 services um, out of three counties um, that have closed their doors in June, and they're all still on the website. So something isn't adding up. Okay, well... Clearly, it seems the figures aren't adding up from your perspective either, because we hear no. from the minister that a billion per year is spent by the government on childcare. Factually incorrect again? Um, yes, no, no, he has. He, yes, absolutely, he has spent that. But what we want to know is, uh, we want to see the breakdown, the full allocation of the funding to the actual providers on the ground, because we've been asking for this now for six months, and we still not have given that data whatsoever. A public report is supposed to be put out publicly every year, and that's 
from 2022, we still haven't seen the 2022 public report. So it's a little bit concerning um, that we don't know the full allocation of breakdown of the funding. What negotiations have you had with the Minister or Department officials around this and have they given any indication that they're prepared perhaps to, to budge slightly when it comes to budget time on this? No, no, not at all. And all we keep hearing from Minister Gorman is that these uh, closures, um, these protests in three days are unwarranted. And um, it's quite disrespectful to the the providers, the staff, parents and children that are going to be on the streets tomorrow outside Leinster House and then closing to localised closures around the country as well. So it, if anything, it's kind of, it's absolutely, it's disrespectful and it's upsetting a lot of providers that he keeps saying they're unwarranted. Um, there's been no talk of, of having a meeting to negotiate any kind of um, a solution to put our solutions on the table. Nothing at all. Now, the real losers in this will be parents and children because children won't have daycare. Parents will have to take time off work, presuming that they are working to look after their children. So clearly there has to be a sense of hostility and anger amongst the parents as a result of this action. We actually haven't come across that at all. Thankfully, we've had huge support from the parents. Um, the parents know why we're doing this. So is it better for us to close and protest for three days or close permanently this time next year? And that's where we are for a lot of the small and medium services. Will you be refunding we- parents for days lost in crashes that they're paying for? I think that's down to the arrangement they have with within the actual service provider themselves. But I think um, I'm hoping that parents will support us for the three days. But you would be encouraging your members to pay parents for loss of crash days financially. As I said, that, that's, that's not something I, I can comment at all on. That's oh, up to whatever. But that's fine. Well, well, what is your, do you, do you have a view on it? Do I have a view on it? No, because it's down to each provider. So each provider has different things in their policies and procedures. So therefore, I can't say that every parent should be given a refund. I know that a lot of services, the parents have um, supported the providers and they're not taking back funding, not taking a refund. Okay, so I mean, the whole point of us going out here um, on the streets is to get more money in for the parents and to ensure that children have places within their services um, nationally. If you look at the closures and you see a lot of services closing in rural Ireland, I mean, those parents are going to have to travel for miles to get a service that can take their children. And you can be sure that those services that are going to be available are going to be booked out for years. And like a lot of us have waiting lists around the country. What do you hope this will achieve, given that the minister is entrenched in his position and is of the view that things are going in the right direction and there's no need for him to intervene at this point? Because he did say, in the context of Budget 24, he'd try and get more money. But that's as as best he can do. So where does that leave you after these three days? How do you propose to escalate to make the minister listen to you? Um, These three days, this is only the starting point. Uh, There will be more protests in October. And we will continue to close the doors, unfortunately, until Minister Gorman and the government listen. Um, it's very unfortunate that he hasn't engaged to actually have a conversation with us. We did send in a, an email there recently looking for another meeting and it was declined. Um, so where do we go from there? I think it has to go above Minister Gorman's head at this stage. I mean, parents are coming out in the streets tomorrow and supporting us. I mean, that, that's huge that they're coming out and bringing their children with them as well. I mean, there's a lot of disadvantaged areas as well that services will be closed in those areas also. You know, so Minister Gorman has to step up now and, and listen to what the providers are saying. I mean, we're definitely not doing this for no reason. Do you accept that in the noise that surrounds pre-budget submissions and everybody clamouring for their slice of the cake, 
that your voice may be just one of many in the wilderness? No, absolutely. Like you can see that every sector is in trouble. I mean, we're, every sector is looking for staff. And you can see that everybody's looking for more funding. Nursing homes coming out this morning as well. And I have been in touch with Nursing Home Ireland and some of the nursing homes around the country. And they're in exactly the same position. So you're looking at the most vulnerable people in this country, the youngest children in our country and the, and the elderly that have been um, left out. And where is your degree of flexibility on this issue? What are you going to settle for? What's the best you can hope to get? So for, for the, um, the early childhood care and education, so that's the three-hour scheme in the morning, the FJ scheme, we're looking for €100 Euros for those service types. So you have to remember, they're only getting €69 Euros a week at the moment. So we're looking for 100 And that will keep the doors open for those services. And these are the ones that a lot of parents use because grandparents may come and pick the children up in the half day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that they're not in a full day care. So they're, they seem to be, um, they're totally unviable at the moment. And we can show that, and we have showed Minister Gorman that these are unviable. And that's due that, presumably to the to the cost of living inflationary pressures that we've witnessed over the past year or so. Uh, absolutely. Like, if, if you look at we, we went from 64.50 back in 2010, then in 20, uh, I think it was 2014, or 2015, we went down to 64.50. Then we came back up in 2018 to 69 euros. I mean, how do you think that we can run a business on 460 an hour per child and have high quality services with high qualified staff who are absolutely amazing? Um, but that's all we're getting is 460 an hour. So if the government I mean, turned around to you, if, uh, I want to ask you this, if the government turned around to you and said they will take cognizant of what you're going through as a result of inflationary pressures and give you something in the interim to get you over that, because as we know, inflation goes up, goes down, and it's going down, albeit slowly. But we'll get to a point where we'll... Well, according to the ECB, we'll get back to around 2% and all will be good then. So a temporary measure, would that be sufficient? Um, I, I just want to read out something too. Um, the inflation rate has gone up since 2020 to 2023 by 16.9%. And we're, getting, we're being funded and our funding is only risen by 6%. So it doesn't add up. Like you've got one, you know, we, we have to look at that. And yes, we, we would look at some kind of um, negotiations of some kind of a deal here to, to help these service providers. I mean, the whole big point is that a lot of them are stuck in a fee freeze since 2017. So you cannot be viable with an inflation rates that have gone up to that height over the last three years. Many businesses are in the same position and have to cut their cloth because of inflation and because of extraordinary expenditure that they no, had not anticipated. So your own members are going to have to do that ultimately. We actually can't because we're highly regulated, so our heating has to be a certain temperature, our water has to be a certain temperature. Like, we can't turn off the heating if, if the, the room is, you know, not warm. We can't do any of that. So all of our costs will be there and will remain and, and are continuing to rise. Well, talk me through, you know, the day-to-day running of a creche from the perspective of one of your members and the difficulties that they face and the decisions that they ultimately will have to make if it continues. Well, I, I can say to you, um, I have two services myself and um, I have four staff out sick today so we've had to cut our numbers today because we can't get replacement staff anywhere. Even the agency has no staff to give us and there is an agency here in Dublin. Um, so we go in in the morning, we open up at 8 o'clock in the morning. From half six in the morning, your heating is on and it has to be up at a certain temperature throughout the day. You have all your insurance, you've got your rates, you've got your food bills. So food alone went up by 15.4%. So everything has gone up. 
which has our funding is still at 0.3% GDP. So that hasn't changed, even though Minister Gorman is putting all of this money in. Like, that funding doesn't just come to us. It goes to his own departments also, Tusla, Better Start, Pobo, the Department of Children. They all get, get a bulk out of that also. Can I ask you, in a stable economy, what was your margin per child and what is it now in terms of potential profit? Um, I have to be honest and say um, I only had a very small service for, for a long time. And during the summer months when I would only open for 38 weeks, I would have to pay my staff their holiday pay at the end. Of the and it was my actually my husband who was paying it, not me. I didn't have any money left in the bank. And that's what's happening with these small and medium services. So why, why, as a business model, if it's not working, do you continue to stay in it? It would work if um, they stopped the fee freeze and allowed us to bring our, our, our funding up to a level that's manageable for our services and for our businesses. But actually, the ECC service types, they have had been in the fee freeze since 2010. And these are the ones that, like, these guys are in serious trouble and so are some of the small and medium. And again, it is down to a fee freeze dating back to 2017. I just want to go back to the point around parents and you told us that parents in the main are supporting this action and what you are yeah. calling for from the government. Yeah. That will wear thin if this continues for parents that they have to continue to try and find care for their children or take holiday time from work in order to look after themselves. So that, that that's, that's not going to wash for a long time with parents. No, we're, we're hoping it doesn't come down to us. At the end of the day, like we're fighting here for our rights to keep our businesses open, so that parents have a place for the child moving forward. You know, like we're supposed to be in a partnership with the, the Department of Children and Minister of Government, but there's no partnership. So the best you can now we hope are, for. We are, we are. Sorry, just to say, we yeah, are in a partnership with our parents, and we work very closely with our parents. We, you know, we take in their children. They trust us throughout the day to have their children in our services. We nurture ch- children on a daily basis, hour by hour. That's what we do. We are a caring sector. It's a pity that nobody else is caring for us and our mental health and how we are struggling under fee-freezes, under um, stress and burnout because of all of the administration burdens that we're put under because of all of these new schemes that are coming in. Like we, we are, as a sector, we are the ones that are paying for these schemes. Now, there's no expectation of you meeting with the Minister of Harv or even having any form of conversation with them prior to Budget 24. So presumably you will await the outcome of what comes in the budget for you before you decide on your next uh, n- next course of action. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, well, look, we were hoping that Minister Cormac would reach out to us um, today or tomorrow to have a conversation because we need to have a conversation around where this is going. But it has to be with solutions on the table. And what from the budget do you expect to get? Something derisory or something meaningful that you can work on? And if you get that meaningful uh, overture, will you go back and negotiate with them? Absolutely. Like We have to see what's coming. Um, and it's funny because normally you start to hear a little thing, little snippets of what's going to be announced for the childcare sector, but nothing is coming um, out at the moment. So and just to say, we also have a lot of TDs and local councillors um, backing us as well. They understand we've done nationwide um, meetings and through those that the um, local councillors and TDs have now learned that there is a major issue here and yet Minister Foreman is saying there isn't and these are unwarranted. Just finally let me ask you if we are in a position where nothing has changed fundamentally to make a financial difference for the operation of creches by our members or early child care facilities what's your anticipation in terms of how many providers will go by the wayside in the next 12 months? 
um, I think we'll have high, high numbers of closures and that's a, a huge worry for us and this is why we are taking to the streets. Okay. Like, we- when, when, can I just say one thing? When, when they um, announced our core funding last year, that core funding was based on a Crow report going, dating back to 2018. So it was poor outdated data that they used to put out the, this, this and they needed the, the Department of Children or our minister do their due diligence on our services and how much it costs to run a service or anything else. I mean, would you not think that that would be the first port of call before you put out any new funding model into the sector? Okay, we leave it there. Elaine Dunn, Chairperson of the Federation of Early Childhood Providers. Thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Sinn Féin announced its alternative healthcare budget with proposals that it said could reduce the cost associated with healthcare and deliver a universal health system. The party's health spokesperson, David Cullinan, said that two terms of government may be necessary to realise these goals and that additional funding and greater coherence between government departments would be required. And David Cullinan joins us for more on this this morning. Deputy, thank you for... Um, taking our call this morning. I want to deal perhaps first with what came out uh, in the media over the weekend following comments by the HSC Chief Executive Bernard Gloucester around Temple Street Children's Hospital. It is almost inconceivable to believe that somebody procured these springs that were not fit for purpose and they were put in to children during operations. How did that happen? Well, that's precisely one of the questions that needs to be answered once uh, this review is up and running. Uh, that's one element of, of what happened, but we also know that there was also data that came from the original uh, review by uh, Children's Health Ireland, which showed that there was an unusually high return to surgery or post-surgical complications um, coming from treatment from uh, one surgeon and and was across a number of hospitals, but equally high numbers of infections. So there's lots of issues and lots of concerns that families have. And I suppose the real issue at the moment is that we now have an inquiry which could be established without the support of the families and the advocates groups. And I think the Minister very seriously dropped the ball by not engaging much earlier with the families. And, And I said this last week when this story first broke, I was very conscious that anything I said had to be through the lens of of the trauma that those families Mm -hmm. and children are going through. They are at the centre of this scandal and they need to be at the centre of any terms of reference or any inquiry in terms of input. It's also reasonable to assume, and the Minister said this as well, that it was almost inconceivable that nobody knew that something was not right, but there were no channels in order to get that information up to those who could act on it. There's clearly difficulties with reporting practices within the organisation as well. Well, I think it's, it's, I think it's understandable that that would be a conclusion that people have already arrived at and we haven't even had a review because there is clinical governance arrangements in place. There are very clear rules in relation to the use of uh, devices and implants when it comes to procedures. There is an approval process. There is checks and double checks. So it does seem inconceivable that this would have happened um, and if it did happen without consent and, and some of those procedures were bypassed intentionally, obviously that is uh, a real issue. But also this is why the advocate groups and the families want a, a review which is as wide as possible because it may well be the case that this was the work of a small number of people, maybe one person, uh, but it may, it may also be a failure of processes right across the board. Um, 
in Children's Health Ireland. And that's why to give comfort to the families and to give reassurance to the families, it is important that the Taoiseach and the Minister for Health meets with them. It's also important that they are consulted and give their consent to the terms of reference for a review. But what's most important is that this review establishes the facts. So okay. the questions that you were putting to me, we obviously want those answers. Right. Well, well, well in, in, in deference to the Minister and the authorities, they did initiate, well, I think we're at inquiry number three, there's a fourth one to be carried out by an external body. The individual has been named in order to undertake that particular practice. But given the magnitude and the seriousness of what has been uh, uncovered so far, will this ultimately end in a tribunal of an inquiry? Well, I, I don't believe it will end there, but to go back to a point that you made yourself, I can't be fair to the Minister in relation to not having met with the advocate groups. Um, no, I understand that, but he did move quickly to, to carry no, out an investigation. But the, HS, the HSE moved quickly, and, and when this transpired, the first job of the Minister should have been to meet with the families affected and to ensure that they were at the centre of any solutions, and that, that simply didn't happen. I spoke to many of them over the course of the weekend. You might have heard them on, on the national airwaves uh, this morning as well. They are traumatised and they are upset about the fact that this has happened in the first instance. But they are saying that all of that hurt has been compounded by the fact that they have essentially been ignored as part of the review process. And I just think that adds insult to injury. So listen, we all want to get to a point where we can have a review that the families can have confidence in. And ultimately, what we want is to establish the facts. Okay. I don't have all of the facts, Alan, and that's why I'm not going to speculate on what may or may not have happened. It's really important that this review is independent, does establish all of the facts, and then whatever that leads us, whether it is one individual or more or bigger problems in Children's Health Ireland, so be it. We owe it to the families and the children to ensure that whatever mistakes were made, we need to identify them and fix them very quickly. Let's go to your own uh, alternative health care budget. And just doing the figures on the back of uh, a bus ticket, as it were, you're looking at potentially one and what, roughly one and a half billion that's required as an initial investment to get things going to where you need them to go. You will need two terms in government. And I give those figures out in the context of the meeting which is happening today the government's cabinet committee on health where they will hear an overspend to July of this year of 750 million with an expectation that will exceed 1 billion before the end of the year so before you can even get off the ground Sinn Féin would have to deal with the financial mess that the department of health is in and let's not forget historically they will always run at a deficit well, I think in the first instance, it's correct to say that any future government will have to deal with the mess that was created by the previous government, and I'm under no illusions in relation to that issue. But in terms of the, the overspend, at the moment, we don't know exactly what that overspend would be. It's a billion. It's it's reasonable to say it's going to be a billion. Well, we don't know. And, and in fact, these are questions that we asked uh, in the Dáil only last week, uh, a number of opposition spokespeople. So we can't get any sort of definitive figure or even uh, any sort of indication from the department of the HSE as to what that final figure would be. It's hard to plan. It, it may be up to a billion euro. But remember, last year's alternative budget from Sinn Féin, we proposed a similar package of measures of 1.1 billion. The minister provided only for 300 million of additional spend. It now seems that we were correct that we massively under 
uh, invested in the health service in terms of the, the need. We know we, and we always knew that there was going to be more demand on the health service last year. Uh, costs have gone up, obviously. So because of all of that, we now have this uh, budget overspend, which we don't know uh, what that will be. But my responsibility is to set out um, a range of health measures that I believe are practical, realistic and deliverable. I didn't create, obviously, the crisis in the overspend. But what I can do is to set out a short to medium to long term vision as to what I want to do. So and what you know, is it? Is it akin to what's happening in the UK with the NHS? Yes, is that so what you want, ultimately? Is, well, it's not just what Sinn Féin wants. All parties have signed up to Shalonta Care, which commits to a universal health care system. Yeah, well, and, I mean, if you look at the universal health care systems and taken in the context of the NHS, it's not exactly the gold standard. I mean, uh, Keir Starmer, the, the Labour Party leader at the beginning of the summer, talked about the utter mess and the chaos that prevails in the NHS. So, so to look at some something like that, it's it's not the gold standard, as I say. Well, if I can get just a, a second to actually make the point in the first instance, Alan, I, I'm not comparing what we in Sinn Féin would do to what's happening over in Britain or anywhere else. The concept of universal health care is something that exists in, Nord- in Nordic countries and in many European countries. What we're proposing is to put in place very clear timeframes for the, the delivery of Shalonda Care, which all political parties have signed up to, but which simply hasn't been delivered at pace. It's my job to set out proposals which are realistic. So on this year's budget, what we're proposing is to uh, deliver 400,000 additional medical cards by increasing the income qualifying threshold to reduce the drug payment threshold scheme uh, from €80 to €50, which would reduce the cost of medicines for all families irrespective of income and to abolish prescription charges. All of this needs to be done if we want to get to the final destination. And and you've asked that question. The final destination, yes, is to have truly public hospitals where we separate private health care from our public system, but also one where we have a universal health care where health care is delivered on the basis of need and not on ability to pay. And I'm looking at all models. Uh, Of course, we have the NHS in Britain, but there are many models which are much more successful. And what we have in this state is a very complicated health system where private health care is embedded in the public system. We have a two-tier system. We have massive waiting lists. And I want to ensure that as a reforming minister for health, we make the investments in the public system. And to do that will require money. It will require taxation. Who's going to pay for this and how much will they have to pay for it? Well, people already pay two and three times for healthcare. If you look at the the numbers of people who take out private health insurance, many of them because uh, they have no option and and just simply can't depend on the public system. And that's understandable, but but will will they be confident enough under your plan not to be in a position where they will have to take out private health insurance? Well, obviously that will depend on how quickly we can deliver on the type of changes that we want. I'm very serious about my intentions of how we can transform the health service. Pierce Doherty will outline in detail uh, this week Sinn Féin's alternative budget, which, yes, will look at additional uh, income-raising uh, measures, particularly on income in excess of €150,000 a year. There will be other measures as well. But we also know that there is available spend, and we all work on, on the parameters of the figures given to us by the Department of Health. We have to set out what our priorities mm. are, which are housing, addressing the cost of living, but also health care. We can either continue to uh, trundle on with the crisis that we have with very high numbers of people on waiting lists in the public system, people waiting days on some cases in emergency departments and having a health service which is not properly funded with no plan to get to a universal system. Or we can look at it uh, from the point of view of having a plan which I've set out in great detail 
I'm setting it how we would get there you know, over a reasonable time period of two terms in government. I want to reduce the cost of health care for families, but I also want to increase capacity okay. in hospitals and crucially in community and primary care to ensure that people have access to better health care. OK, we must leave it there, Deputy David Cullen. Thank, and you, thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. WhatsApp 086-1800-658 or you can email michael at lmfm.ie. Quite a number of comments coming into us. We'll get to those before we leave you at 11 o'clock this morning. But let's move on. There are around 1,300 premature deaths in Ireland every year due to poor air quality. The latest EPA report shows burning solid fuel in homes and nitrogen dioxide, mainly from road traffic, are the main threats. It's recommending using cleaner fuels to heat houses and reduce the use of cars to achieve WHO guidelines. Pat Byrne is Programme Manager in the Office of Radiation Protection and Environment uh, Monitoring with the EPA and joins us uh, online this morning. Pat, thanks for taking our call this morning. Um, We're not doing badly, but we're not doing as well as we should be doing. Is that reasonable to say? Yeah, that's probably the summary that we're seeing, Alan. Um, So uh, we are currently compliant with the EU guidelines targets that are there that are set for all European countries. So in that sense, we're doing quite well. However, the World Health Organization has, based on much health science and health-based research, shown that really the targets need to be actually much more tight, and they've come out with guidelines. Those guidelines have been adopted by Ireland in its clean air strategies, so that's an ambition to move towards those guidelines with interim targets in 2026, 2030 and ultimately 2040, and they will be challenging to meet. And I suppose just the other side of it is that Europe is looking at its current current legal limits and looking to move those towards the World Health Organization limits as well. So there's definitely a progression towards uh, those lower limits, which are and and offer really good benefits from a health perspective. Um, But again, as I say, just quite a challenge to make those moves, both on particulate matter, Mm -hmm. which largely comes from solid fuel burning, and nitrogen dioxide, which is more from road traffic primarily. Okay, can I just get back to the World Health Organization air quality guidelines? I I would consider, consider perhaps that to be the real measure of success because that is specifically relating to the health of not just our country, but Europe. And it strikes me that, I could be wrong with this statistic, but somewhere close to between 94 and 98% of the population of Europe are being affected and their health is being undermined as a result of these pollutants. Is that is that a correct statistic? Yeah, yeah that has been a figure that's been put out there only recently uh, by a study, I think it was The Guardian newspapers had actually taken that measure across Europe and again they're pulling the information from the likes of information that we provide back to the European Environment Agency and all other countries do so that is the scale of the challenge that is there for Ireland and the rest of Europe Um, so like it's that's where we're trying to emphasize is big big challenge and I suppose there are measures there that are starting to make improvements but it's just to increase those such as, I suppose, retrofitting houses, making them more energy efficient, therefore less need for solid fuel burning. And really that move from solid fuel to, I suppose, in a progression to oil, to gas, and I suppose the preference then all be to um, heat pumps and electricity as the power or as the heat support. Heat okay. Supply. Can I ask you perhaps just to ex- explain to us in the simplest possible terms when we talk yeah. about fine particulate matter, PM 2.5, yeah. what is it? 
So I suppose it's it's extremely fine. So it's it's a, it's two point five is put out there. It's two point five micrograms. So it's it's really really small uh, particulate matter. And the difficulty with that is you can't see it, but if uh, when you breathe it, it can infiltrate deep into your lungs and even into the blood system. So that's where it actually can cause the health impacts and negative health impacts. Um, and I suppose, as I say, a big source of that is the burning of solid fuels. All, you know, all fuels, but solid fuels, I suppose, in the domestic setting, whether an open fire or stove, emits that very much locally. And it's really in times when there's actually low wind speed, those calm, still, cold nights, frosty nights or evenings, when that particular matter will actually just sit there in the local area and if you're out, out, walking, running, otherwise you're breathing that in and that is the risk risk time. So it's short-lived in a lot of cases in Ireland because we're predominantly breezy and we have that wind coming in off the, from the west, but um, it's those sort of short periods of calmer weather, calm cold weather is actually when we see the higher concentration. Okay, there's no question that we are making inroads in relation to legislation around smoky fo- uh, smoky uh, coal, around yep. um, solid fuel uh, and, and, and other matters. But it strikes me there's little or no enforcement in relation to this, particularly in urban areas. Yeah, so you're right. Um, there was a solid fuel regulation brought in in October of last year in 2022. So last year, a lot of the work, and that was actually restricting the retail and sale of smoky fuels, <coughs> smoky coal, turf and wet wood. <coughs> Excuse me. And I suppose what we're calling for now is for the local authorities to provide more resources to the enforcement that engaging with the retail sector following up on it. Last year was a lot of awareness with those. This year, I suppose, it's actually more a case of actually becoming a bit more, you know, implemented, ensure that it is happening on the ground. And that for the benefit of consumers, that they actually buy fuels that are cleaner for them and cleaner for their local communities. Is there any sanctions imposed on us by Europe for not meeting these particular uh, measures that they put in place? Yeah, so as as we said at the start, we're currently relatively compliant and, and, and quite compliant with the European limits. So therefore, we don't have, um, I suppose, a, a, an enforcement by Europe against us. Um, I suppose the exception is nitrogen dioxide, where we did have a, an exceedance at one site in the Dublin area. And uh, as a follow-up to that, the local authorities in Dublin have to actually put a place an action plan to start making improvements and that is over the next number of years so that's the Dublin local authorities are focused on that and again that's around actually trying to reduce the level of traffic but also moving vehicles towards electric vehicles both cars buses etc so it's, it's a bit it's a bit light touch in terms of the sanctions in that you know you have a couple of years lads to sort it out but there's nothing that will come down in force suppose, on you yeah I suppose the nature of it, Alan, is that, like, you know, these aren't actually quick fixes um, because if you take even houses in terms of converting away from solid fuel, it's not an immediate fix. A lot of people depending on solid fuel. So it does take some time. And, and, and I suppose that retrofit and the supports that are there should hopefully help that. And there's a lot of commonality between what's required to improve air quality and what will improve uh, climate and address climate change. Um, so, like, you know, the, the air aspects 
are a quick win, a local win, uh, whereas the climate aspects, I suppose, are more a global perspective. Okay, we must leave it there. Pat Byrne, Programme Manager in the Office of Radiation Protection and Environment Monitoring with the EPA joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. The price of a three-bedroom semi-detached home nationally has breached the 300,000 mark for the first time since 2007 as prices for homes outside the capital and major cities soar. As prices in Ireland's larger towns rose by 2% in the past three months and are increasing at twice the rate of those in Dublin and major cities uh, around a particular country. Now, joining us for more on this is Darina Collins of OREA O'Brien Collins in Drogheda. Darina, thanks for, for taking our call. Perhaps you could give us an insight into way the, the way the market is going in Louth and more notably in Drogheda, because as I understand it, things don't stay on the market for too long in Drogheda and they're gone pretty quickly. Good morning, Alan. Thank you for having me on. And yes, absolutely, uh, Drogheda is a very popular place by all accounts to to buy your new home and settle down. I mean, in the last, we've noticed a huge um, difference in the last three to four months in, in the speed of uh, it's taking to sell a second-hand house. And we've gone from an average of sort of seven weeks down to four weeks to go sale agreed. And that's that's very quick when you think of it from the time you take to put a house on the market here and show the interested parties around and take the bids and check out their finances. And it's taking less than four weeks, really, we're finding. But that's mainly down to the scarcity of second-hand mm-hmm. homes. And are they are they mainly first-time buyers who are, who are mainly buying? First-time, yeah, mainly first-time buyers with their loans in place, uh, mortgage approval at the go, and, uh, yeah, they're, re- they're ready to go. So it isn't, it's taking, it's really just taking the time for them to find the house that suits them. Mm-hmm. That's that's the only delay. But there, there's such a scarcity, Alan, of supply at the moment that I think everybody's feeling that countrywide, but uh, particularly in Drogheda. Now, you, you and most other people will be aware of the fact that we've seen the ECB uh, increase interest rates for probably the 10th, 11th time over the past 18 months or so. Yes. Is that um, squeezing the market a little bit? Are people reluctant to, to jump in and buy? Are they holding off to see what's going to happen perhaps in the budget? Uh, no, no, it doesn't seem to be now. It's, it's hard to call, Alan, because there's such a scarcity of supply. Um, so uh, the, the, uh, because of that, there is uh, still a high demand. It doesn't seem to be affecting uh, the, the market, certainly in the either the new homes or the second-hand market around the Drogheda area anyway. But that's, I think, too, because uh, people are being pushed out of the city. I think the same survey, our same survey, shows that the average house price in Dublin for a three-bed semi is up around 500, mm-hmm. where in Loud, in general, I think it's 265 now, and in the Drogheda area, we're, we're suggesting around 285 for a three-bed semi, so that's still perceived as affordable. There seems to be anecdotal evidence, and I don't know if you have seen this in terms of the people buying in Louth, and particularly in Drogheda, are tending to come from North Dublin. Is that the case? Yes, well, well, that's certainly a, they're they're being pushed out of the city, I suppose. But Drogheda has and Dundalk indeed have a particular advantage in that we're on the main line rail. There's very good commuter services, both private and public bus services, into Dublin. And this, if they can't buy in Dublin, 
or in North County Dublin, the next port of call, I suppose, is out to the likes of Drogheda and Navan and Dundalk. And the towns in Loud and Meath are certainly uh, feeling the result of the high prices in Dublin. Now, just to, to perhaps maybe for our listeners' uh, point of view, talk a little bit about these figures and how we came to these figures, because it's important to understand how they were collated. Uh, you mean from, from REA's point yes, of view? Yes, from REA's point oh, of view. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, we have uh, 55 agents in REA around the country. REA is, is, uh, stands for Real Estate Alliance. So we're, we're a collection of independent agents countrywide and we do a quarterly survey um, every quarter and feedback on the same the same idea of the first time buyer house which is the standard stock of a three bed semi second hand now at the moment uh, because there has been thankfully uh, an increase in availability of new homes uh, that is also entering the, the factor for mm. first-time buyers. And, and obviously the new homes have all sorts of incentives, uh, help-to-buy schemes and so on, and the high energy rating. So that makes them very attractive, but they're also more expensive. So the second-hand home, uh, whereas uh, it probably wouldn't be as high an energy rating is a very attractive prospect for but, but just in relation to the figures arrived at and the breakdown of the figures they were done on the basis of actual sale prices opposed to asking there are, there prices are is that correct? There are sale prices Alan yes they're not asking prices um, and they're not they're, they're sale prices as of this month uh, that they would be sale agreed as the most recent sales. So they're a pretty good barometer of where we're at in terms well, of sales. You know, when, you, when, you, when you get uh, sold prices, uh, you're looking at maybe a time lag of four to five months from the time a house goes sale agreed to when it goes sold. So we're talking sale agreed prices. This is, this is deposits that are in at the moment for uh, agreed prices on houses. They may not necessarily have uh, closed the sale as yet, so it's very current. Okay, now you talk about the challenge in relation to new bills, particularly in Drogheda and in County Louth. So the actual stock that's on the market, is it possible to extrapolate from that? Were they landlords fleeing the market and deciding it's not a good business model? We we would say the majority, in in our case anyway, uh, the the majority of uh, second-hand sales um, are from landlords, not so much fleeing the market, but deciding that the, the time has come now to sell, that the prices are back up at the, the level at which they paid for, and the, the legislation around uh, landlords and tenants, it's, it's getting trickier, and, and, and probably rightly so, but a lot of the landlords that would be selling would have been accidental landlords, and they are now getting out of the market and selling. And yes, so we would see uh, certainly, certainly upwards of 55% of the sales uh, are attributed to landlords leaving the market. Now, you've been in the business for a number of years. You've seen peaks and troughs. This is another peak, I presume. Where do you think that it will end, given that we're in a position where we just don't have that new supply coming online and won't for, for a considerable period of time? 
Gosh, Alan, if I had a crystal ball, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be in this business at all. But no, I, I mean, look, we have seen peaks and troughs, and, and uh, that's the nature of the, the property market, the Irish property market. And at the moment, uh, I, I suppose one could suggest that with the scarcity of supply that's the, and the increase in demand, there's only one way the prices are going. Now uh, we are. It is being mitigated in that there there are a lot of new home schemes on coming on stream, and that's visible in the Greater Drogheda area. I'm sure you're aware that the mm-hmm. amount of yeah. house building has increased exponentially, which is wonderful and uh, not before time. And hopefully, uh, th- this is is just there's a gap at the moment between the supply and the demand. But I do think we're heading in the right direction, and that demand. There will be, there will be, well, maybe not met completely, but there will certainly be be an increased supply, which you, should help even out things. Yeah, do you get the sense that things are stabilising? Okay, we're seeing increases, albeit those increases have moderated and they're not as great as they had been in previous years. And if we look at the Dublin market, for example, that has pretty much flatlined in some parts of the city. So, are, yes. are we going to see that stabilisation continue? Uh, I, I would I would think very possibly we will because um, the the supply is reaching uh, the supply is rising, uh, Alan, and that is making that will make a difference. And the affordability, of course, is the other factor. I mean, it doesn't matter what you ask for, uh, what price you ask, it's what price you can sell at, and that's also reflected in the maybe the increase in prices in the, in the commuter countries and further out into the country. And it's also because from ever since COVID, I think that more and more people can work from home. So instead of having to drive into the city every morning, they may be only having to go in twice a week or whatever. And this has affected the, the, the distribution of the price increases as well. As somebody who is uh, very close to what is happening and what potentially may happen coming out of the budget, are you getting any sense that the government may move to do something for landlords and perhaps look at the possibility of providing supports for first-time buyers, not just for new homes, which they are already doing, but for second-hand homes and the Help to Buy scheme? Is that a possibility? Yeah, funny, funny you should say that just before I came on air with you, Alan, I had a call uh, from somebody looking for uh, just generally the inquiry and this we get more and more, have you any new homes for sale in the Drogheda area? And um, But they were looking for say, particularly out in Bettystown and I suggested, well we've nothing out there at the moment but we do have a second hand house, it just come on the market blah 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 and uh, they were asking me the very same question. Do I think that the, the help to buy scheme might be extended to, to second-hand homes? I think it would be a very good idea. However, that also begs the question, would it just push up the prices of the second-hand homes? So, so it's a hard one to call, really. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we shall see because the budget will be upon us very quickly. Trina Collins of Aurea O'Brien, Collins and Drada, thank you for joining us. I just want to get to some of your comments because I know the time will run away with us and we won't get an opportunity to read them. But a lot of it, in fact, they're all in relation to the childcare protest, which is going to be happening for three days this week. Anna says, Minister O'Gorman, for him to claim that the actions being taken by childcare providers this week are unwarranted, just highlights how out of touch this government are with 
reality. Of course, it's warranted as strike action is the only way to get the attention of government in this country. And unfortunately, this is the only option left to them. But yet again, the minister doesn't want to accept that childcare is yet another area where this government has failed the public. Tommy says it's all right for Minister O'Gorman and his colleagues. Their ministerial salaries and pensions are excellent. They don't have to worry about the rising cost of living. These childcare staff are on a pittance and are simply just looking to make a salary that they can survive on. Government gaslighting of staff in this sector is unforgivable. They're absolutely right to take this strike action. And May is one of those parents who will have to take time off work this week to mind her children because her childcare will be closed. Her husband will be doing the same, but she says they fully support the childcare workers and their actions. For too long, this sector has been overlooked by government and it's disgraceful given that these workers are charged with looking after our most precious possessions, our children. Government should hang their heads in shame for forcing them to take this course of action. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. 086 658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Nursing Homes Ireland is calling on the government to protect long-term residential care services by applying the same principles. It applies to the political system to ensure proportional provision is in place. In tandem, it's called for it to prioritise bringing into effect a long-standing recommendation to government for a framework to bring key stakeholders around the table to identify strategies to ensure and sustain provision of quality long-term residential care. The call was made at the organisation's annual conference in Kilkenny last week. And joining us this morning is Ty Daly, NHI CEO. Ty, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. Before we get into that, can you just bring me back to May of this year in the PwC report, which found that 31 private and voluntary nursing homes had been shut over the last three years with a loss of 915 beds. Has that gone up, stabilised or gone down since then? Yeah, good morning, Alan. Uh, regrettably, it, it's actually increased uh, since we spoke last. In the last 12 months alone, uh, there's been a further 18 nursing homes closed. So uh, we're over 40 homes now at this point in time that have closed in, in the last number of years. Uh, and as you say, I mean, that is heartbreaking for those residents who lived in those homes, uh, for the staff who work there and for the communities who have now lost uh, vital services. So, I mean, the, the, the figures, um, you know, I suppose belie the real story and the real story as I say is that for many communities now they've now lost valuable community services uh, so there is absolutely a crisis in, okay. in nursing home care. I just want to separate public from private. Public nursing yes. homes it's reasonable to say they represent somewhere around 15 to 18 percent of the total bed capacity is that correct? I think it's less now actually. Is it? Um, capacity has, has decreased over the years, so it, it's running at about, yeah, probably about 15%, yeah, in total. Yeah. Now, there has been a number of those public nursing homes closed, 11 as I understand it, due primarily to, you know, not meeting HICWA standards. Is that correct? Yeah, the physical environment, yeah, I mean, there, there has, you know, the HICWA new national quality standards came in 2009. Uh, each of the homes, public, private and voluntary, were given a six-year period to get into line, as it were, with the physical environment standards. And uh, there are a number of the public homes that were, you know, significantly challenged in respect to physical environment. So a number of those have been repurposed as short days. Okay. So you're absolutely correct. There's been, there's been a reduction across the board in public uh, homes, in private homes, and also in okay. I'll come to Okay, I'll come, yeah, I'll come to private in a second. But just with the loss mm. of the public nursing homes, have they been replaced no, there hasn't been any replacement. Uh, I mean, there has been some 
but but not in not in their entirety. And there are some plans for further public nursing homes. Um, and I mean, that's ultimately, you know, in your introduction, you spoke of our call for a plan. That's ultimately what we're saying. I mean, we can get caught up in public, private and voluntary all day long, but all the public need to know in terms of your listeners this morning is if I need care in the community and nursing home, will there be one there for me? You know, and, and that's the, the, the real challenge. So you're absolutely correct. At a time when we have an ageing population, what we're seeing is the provision of community care and, and nursing home care in particular has actually decreased in the last number of years. OK, well, talk to me about, you know, an initiative which was floated more than a decade ago where it was proposed that all stakeholders, including yourselves, get around the table to put in place what can be described as a proper fit-for-purpose facility for people should they wish to go into, into homes. Whatever happened to that? Yeah, you're dead right. I mean, that was the, the National Economic and Social Council. And, and NESC, as it's known, you know, is effectively, a, a, you know, an agency of government which made that recommendation in 2010, would you believe, or 2012, rather, my apologies, in 2012. And what that said at the time was, you know, it, it was looking forward and it was saying, you know, we have an aging population, we need to plan. That recommendation is basically sitting in a report. Uh, it was never actioned. Um, and I suppose we're bearing the, the fruits uh, of the fact that we have ignored that recommendation uh, for over a decade now at this point in time. So if we look at the current situation around the provision of of beds in whether it be public or private homes, what's the wait list? Let's deal with private first. Yeah, I mean, it could vary from place to place, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in some parts of the country, there may be capacity, but I know in, in many other parts of the country, it, it can be difficult. I mean, the Fair Deal is a very, very good scheme. Many of your listeners may be aware of it, would be maybe uh, benefiting, as it were, from it. Uh, but, you know, that's only one part of the equation. It's all very well, you know, getting the, the financial approval if there isn't a bed, and more particularly if there isn't a bed in your local community. And that's our fear. Our fear is that in a number of, of months and definitely in a number of years, we'll have a situation whereby people from, uh, you know, the loud media area, for example, might have to travel, you know, to Cavan uh, or, or indeed uh, maybe into Dublin to get a bed. Because that will, you know, when we lose nursing homes in local communities, the reality is in many parts of the country, they won't be rebuilt uh, because of the economic challenge that, that is there in terms of the, the bills cost but also the operational cost. Okay, let's talk about what was proposed at your um, gathering last week in Kilkenny. And it seems practical enough that you want a system akin to what happens, you know, in the political system, that there's uh, clear and proper representation within constituencies. That's more or less what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we gathered in Kilkenny, as you say, at our annual conference um, on on Thursday last, and, uh, you know, while a very challenging time for all of us in the health service and and indeed the nursing home sector, you know, people were trying to remain positive and upbeat. But yeah, the the, the proposal from ourselves is that, you know, I was quite struck uh, when I saw the recent results of the Constituency Commission. And what that did was it said, OK, here's the population. Uh, here's where the population resides across the country. Uh, so we need extra representation in the Oireachtas. Um And that's a very sensible and appropriate thing to do. Uh, so what we're saying is that that system should be replicated in respect of care of the older person. And I mean that across the, the, you know, the continuum of care, you know, daycare, home care, meals on wheels, independent living and nursing home care. So we know there's no surprise that people are living longer. That's a positive. There's no surprise that the population over 85 is increasing by about 50% in the next number of years. Um, so our view is that we need to plan for that. 
uh, and, and, you know, replicating what happened with the Constituency Commission, to me, uh, seems a very sensible and appropriate approach to ensuring we have that capacity in the community in, in the years to come. Now, you will accept, and reports bear out my next question to you in the papers this morning, where we see a cost overrun of the Department of Health somewhere yeah. around the one billion mark by the end of this year. That is a major financial hole to plug. And any thoughts of putting money into building nursing homes or providing incentives thereof, are, it's not really going to happen as a tie. Well, well, I mean, there is no alternative, Alan, to be brutally frank with you. But there's no money. There There may be no alternative, but there's no money. Well, I mean, look, we've we've got to be clear here. Like, we have older people who, you know, will reside in acute hospitals at multiples of the cost if we don't have that care in the community. And by that, I mean the broad spectrum of care in the community. Uh, And, you know, the the private and voluntary sector of nursing homes has shown itself to provide value for money in in that regard. Um, so if we don't invest and support and sustain not alone existing provision, uh, that's the priority, but also future provision, we're going to have an acute hospital system that is going to be in perennial crisis. I mean, I would have spoken to you and others in the media every year around November, December, January, uh, around what would be termed the trolley crisis. I mean, the trolley crisis is all year round now, unfortunately. Um, and I speak to people every day of the week, uh, you know, people that I know, family, friends, who are, uh, you know, conscious uh, that if they did need a hospital bed, uh, will they get it? Mm-hmm. So that's why we need to invest. Sean Care talks about community care, reorientation of, of care into the community. So, you know, we have to invest in the community. Um, and while, yes, there are significant challenges in the health service, um, you know, the private and voluntary sector, as I say, has shown itself to provide excellent service. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you this, Tyg. What does a good, stable care system look like? Well, I suppose there's a couple of bits to that question. Um, but ultimately, it's about certainty. I mean, if you're a provider of care, whether it's home care or daycare or indeed long-term residential care, what you need to know is that there's a certainty around the funding model in particular and the resourcing. And that's the challenge at the moment in nursing homes. I can speak uh, about nursing homes. Nursing homes, as you say, the PwC report, over a third of all homes lost money in 2021 operationally. Um, now, you can sustain, any business could sustain the last maybe for a year or possibly two years, but not on an ongoing basis. And our concern at the moment, Alan, is that there is no confidence in the sector. So if you're an existing provider of nursing home services, you're looking and saying, government aren't going to act, they're not going to invest the money, so will I just get out now and close my nursing home? Um, and that's the appalling vista that's facing us if we don't invest in the, in the upcoming budget. So certainty in terms of the funding model is critically, critically important and being able to, um, you know, re- have a return on investment, for example. I mean, if you're building, uh, you know, a 100-bed nursing home in the morning, you know, the, the costs are staggering. It's 20 million uh, of the order of. We saw recently where the HSE are building a home in Clifton, you know, 40 beds for 35 million. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so well, can I just ask you, should that care system also look at the care that's provided by carers in the home? Because in reality, that's something that we have to look at. There has to be a absolutely. balanced view of it. Oh, 100%. I mean, like, you know, it's not nursing homes versus home care or anything. I suppose in, in terms of the system, really, what we need to do is ensure that we have more community, enhanced community care. And that's what I mean by daycare, meals on wheels, independent living, uh, uh, home care and nursing home care. But, but what that means for nursing homes is that the, 
the, the people who come now to reside in nursing homes are uh, of an older age uh, and with more complex care needs. Um, so that's the challenge for us in terms of the, the, the nursing home sector. But, but, you know, the fact that people are living longer, as I say, is a very welcome development. Um, so we need a whole range of services. OK, yeah, uh, but, but it, non- it nonetheless creates problems and pinch points. What is the oh, point yeah. where we, we've seen there's red flags being raised? There's no question about that. But when yeah. is, are we close to the point where we are facing a crisis? Well, we are in crisis in some parts of the country, I can tell you. I just saw recently a HICWA report on University uh, Hospital in Galway, and they were making the point because of the closure of homes in the vicinity of, of the hospital, they were finding it difficult to discharge people from the hospital. So we're going to see more of that, unfortunately, unless we act. We need to stay positive as well and look at the positives. And the positives is that there is a willingness um, on behalf of the private and voluntary sector to collaborate with the HSE, with the Department of Health, to ensure we have that provision. But if we don't act and act quickly, then we will be in, in even a, a bigger crisis uh, in the years to come because there won't be that supply of nursing home beds in the community to meet those community care needs. And that will put inordinate pressure on an already uh, over-pressurised acute hospital system. Tyg, before I let you go, I just want to ask you about the operation of a fair deal. How is that working? Yeah, to be fair, it is working well from the point of view of the uh, older person and the family who apply. So to be fair to the HSE, they have a national office. Um, you know, the waiting time is probably, you know, four to six weeks, uh, maybe even less in some parts of the country. So, yeah, from the, the care recipient point of view, the fair deal is working well. Uh, but from the, the provider point of view, uh, the funding model is broken, badly broken. Uh, and that's, this has been said by numerous reports at this stage. So, uh, you know, it's long overdue uh, a review of the price of the pricing mechanism. And until unless and until we, we act on that, we are in for a very difficult number of years in terms of care of the older person. We leave it there. Nursing Home Ireland CEO Tyke Daly joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. The Tonish that says the government is set to take strong action on the use of vapes. It follows indications made by the Health Minister there will soon be a clampdown on flavours and single-use products. Michael Martin says there's a clear environmental issue when it comes to e-cigarettes and the number of young people using them is worrying. To discuss this and where it may end, we're joined by Fianna Fáil TD, Paul McAuliffe, as well as John Mallon of Forest Ireland. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Deputy, if I can go to you first, as I understand it, you did, it's probably fair to say, a scoping exercise amongst councillors around the country to ascertain the level of difficulties they have with cleaning up, I suppose, after these disposable vapes. Have you had anything back from them? Yes, uh, and a number of local authorities are already taking action in, in terms of how uh, disposable vapes can be uh, can be disposed of. I think it's important maybe at the outset just to differentiate. So there's obviously rechargeable vapes that are used uh, for, for, for people and then there's single-use disposable vapes. Uh, and these have a, often have a lithium battery, electronic components, there's obviously plastic packaging and they're effectively for a single-use purpose. Uh, and what I'm saying is is that that idea of single-use plastics is something we're phasing out for knives and forks, for cups, for lots of things. Uh, and the idea that a new product like this, which uh, we're seeing all, all the time now on our streets being dumped and left on top of bins, in planters, um, th- that the idea that a new product could come in and start to use more plastic than its predecessor uh, just just isn't a runner. It's not logical, and it's something we should prevent. Okay, is it, is it akin there's, there's to a different argument around vaping? But yeah. I think on the environmental issue, 
uh, th- th- this is a slam zone. There's no reason why you would not, uh, why you would allow single-use plastic disposable vapes. Okay, and is what is it akin to the blight of chewing gum we see in our streets, or has it reached that level yet? Like I know, this summer we've seen a huge explosion of it, um, and, and uh, like there's lots of groups out there, like our tidy towns groups and so on. And people are trying to be uh, safe as to how they dispose of these. These are the equivalent of batteries or other electronic uh, uh, items. They have to be disposed of through the WEEE collection system, uh, and with the best will in the world, that's not happening, uh, and it's unlikely to happen when you have something that people think of as disposable. Okay. They're not going to safely put it away and ca- once a month bring it down to the recycling centre. The easiest way around this, then, would have to be either total ban or make it so prohibitively expensive that they're just not bought. Slam a massive tax on it, end of. Problem solved, surely. Yeah. Yeah, so there's three options. Minister Roisin Smith put out a consultation uh, over the summer, and I suppose the three options are, are, are around all of the things you suggest. The idea of using legislation to ban uh, the sale, manufacture, and distribution. The second option would be have like a deposit or return scheme, um, or the third one would be to have better collection services for um, f- for them, so that uh, you, you could return them to the stores, for example. Uh, that, that, that you purchased them from. As I say, we are we have a huge drive towards reducing packaging uh, and, and waste products. Yep. And the idea that there's an alternative available, it's a rechargeable yep. system. Um, my, in my view, we should just bite the bullet here and, and, and go for an outright ban. Yeah, but let's leave aside just the environmental impact on these for the moment. There's also the health aspect. So in reality, if we want to tackle the consequences of using these vapes, and I know there'll be a cohort saying they're safer than using, you know, the traditional cigarette. But in reality, there are health implications. So just ban them or tax them out of existence. They're realistically the two options we should be looking at, Deputy. Yeah, and look, there is still a much more mixed picture around the use of vaping in general. Um, I think a lot of people supported them in the beginning because they they could see people coming away from, I think they're called combustible cigarettes, which uh, you and I might know is just regular cigarettes. Um, They they have a detrimental impact on your health. uh, And the idea of anything that moves people away from them is a positive thing. I suppose the worry is, is that there's people taking up vaping that would never have smoked. Um, and the question is, is the consumption of nicotine uh, a positive thing for those people? And uh, look, there's still a lot of mixed science on this. I think we, we were right to ban the sale for under 18s. I think that was never a good never a good idea to even permit that or to allow a loophole. Uh, and I don't agree with the idea of flavoured uh, vaping. Um, but it, it, we're still very new uh, and there's still lots of lots of research to be done on vaping in general. I suppose my point focuses mostly on the environmental issue because it's, it's an open and shut case. We shouldn't allow a product to be more intensive use of plastic, electronics uh, and other materials okay. than, it, it, than its traditional form. We wouldn't allow that for any other product and so therefore in my, in my, my mind it's a no-brainer. Right, John Mallon of Forest, thank you for joining us as well. You're probably seething in the background there at the, <laughs> at the notion of any ban on these vapes. You believe it probably it impinges on one's rights, one's, you know, well, right to choose. Obviously, the, the, the whole idea of this is to try to, to cut down on freedom of choice. But in, in, in actual fact, there's a lot of what Alan says I agree with. Yeah, sorry, can you hear me? 
S- sorry, yes, I can hear you. Go, go ahead, oh, okay. John. It was Paul. It was uh, the, the field fault TD, Paul McAuliffe, uh, uh, speaking just prior. Yeah. Sorry, Paul. Excuse me. An awful lot of what you said, I agree with. But he pointed out that that we Ireland uh, have these blue battery boxes. They're in all over the country. There's one close to you, uh, uh, anywhere you are in the shops. And there's also another uh, rule that the, the people that sell these vapes. Uh, have uh, um, responsibility for them, so they must take them back from you. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever you like to put it, uh, it's on the basis that you buy you buy the same thing again from them, and you you hand in the old one. Um, now, the problem with that is people don't know about it. There isn't a wide-scale government adver- advertisement for these, uh, asking people to go to these stores. Sorry, John, I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I, I just, I missed that. Are, are you telling me that there is something in place that allows return of these yeah, particular vapes? Yeah, as Paul said, um, there's a restriction in so far as anyone who sells you one of these has to take it back from you by law. Unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever you like to think of it, um, if you do that, you're under, you're under uh, onus to actually buy the same again from them. So the same. So if you bring in um, a, a used one-off e-cigarette, uh, you have to buy a second one from them. But the, in the wee Ireland, in the battery boxes, you can just throw them into them. And they're, they're in supermarkets and other outlets like petrol stations and so on all over the country. And they'll take those back and recycle them. So there has to be then question marks over the social responsibility of individuals who use these and just throw them on the ground. And if there were, uh, as absolutely. you point out, enough facilities around for them to put them into, they wouldn't be there. So what is it a case absolutely. of laziness or what? I'd say a lack of education. People don't know about them. Ah, come on, lack of education about disposing of something responsibly. That doesn't take a whole lot of education. That's like saying that, you know, you shouldn't be throwing rubbish on the ground. It's the same thing. Well, you see, Alan, it's a little bit more complex than that. The, 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 the amount of lithium-ion in this, which is the offending substance, the amount of lithium-ion uh, lithium in, in the e-cigarette is much tinier than that in your phone. And, uh, and, and your laptop has an even bigger one. And we have nothing in place at all in this country for car batteries, an awful lot of them, lithium-ion, lithium-ion as well, and they're huge. So, you know, there is this whole electronic disposal debate to go on. Um, The other aspect of this that that has been brought up is that uh, young people are using them, young teenagers are using them. And uh, I would suggest instead of trying to ban them outright, I would just start off with, uh, which the government is dragging its feet on, introducing a law banning people under 18 from buying these products. But just ban them totally. They represent a threat to the health of the young individuals of this nation. They should be banned. Well, what health implication are you talking about here? There are proven health implications of of smoking a cigarette. All of the dangers of that are in the smoke. I I understand that, John, but how how many decades did it take before there was a realisation on the part of the authorities and the public that smoking cigarettes will ultimately lead to a timely demise? The same is going to happen with these vapes, that in time that there will be empirical evidence, medical evidence that points out that these are a danger to health, they will kill you. Do you, do you know who invented the e-cigarette? Go on, enlighten me. Okay, it was a Chinese fella who was a smoker himself. He was smoking 30 a day. He was an engineer. 
Yeah, but that doesn't so take it, away it, from the point I'm making around the health of these. Yeah, but what, what health are you talking about? Health, what health implication? I mean, in, in a cigarette, if you light one up, there are your five or 6,000 chemicals in the smoke. But we know That's that. But, but remember, the, the vaping is what I would consider to be very much in its embryonic stages on this planet. And it will take time before there is sufficient medical evidence that points to the fact that these, th- this practice cannot be healthy. How can it be healthy inhaling, ingesting this stuff into your lungs and then into your well, bloodstream? Well, yes, see, see, you're using, you're using, you're using a mode of terms like this stuff into your lungs. What stuff specifically are you talking about? Do you know what a cigarette, a cigarette's made up of? Tell me. Okay, uh, mostly water. That's that's because it has to. Yeah, that's where you get your steam from. Then it has nicotine, and it's an approved amount, an EU approved amount of nicotine in it, which is again tiny. And the last one is flavouring. Flavouring is very important. I didn't realise it until I got, well, started myself on e-cigarettes, which took me off. But it stopped me smoking, along with 200,000 other people in this country. But uh, you actually had to specify. I presume they'd automatically taste of tobacco. And then if you wanted something to be plum or pear or, uh, you know, sweets of some kind, um, you'd, have to, you'd have to ask for that. But in fact, you have to ask for tobacco flavour. So the flavouring is separate. It's a flavouring that tries to emulate or make it taste like a cigarette, while it isn't one. There's no tobacco and there's nothing combusted. There's nothing burns. So there's no danger to health per se. Um, you do get nicotine in it. But I, I have looked at and, and seen a quote from um, Ash UK. They were virulently anti-smoking. And the head of Ash UK, 10 years later, came out with the statement that nicotine, a hit from nicotine, is about the same as a hit from coffee in the morning. And he said it's about the same, it presents the same risk. But there so, is so, there, there, again, going back to my point that this is embryonic stuff, the quantitative and qualitative data is not there yet to ascertain whether this is safe or not. Yeah, but the foundation of it is fairly steady. The, I mean, the e-cigarette's been around for 20 years. Uh, it just hasn't been all that popular. But, but it's unlikely to be dangerous. I'll put it to you that way. Uh, if they look at it and review it in 20 years' time, uh, a cigarette, if they looked at it and reviewed it in t- 20 years' time, continues to be unsafe, continues to pose a high risk for health. But an e-cigarette doesn't. You've got people saying, we'll find out it will in the future. I mean, that, and, and, and try and prove that, that that's not the case. You know, that, that's trying to prove a negative. It, it can't work. Um, the, the thing is, they're there for a reason. They're, they're not there. I, it, I don't know. You're probably a non-smoker. I, I, well, I'll put my cards on the table and tell you, I was a huge smoker for many years. I smoked two packs a day, two packs of Rothman cigarettes, and I said yep. enough of this, and I just gave them up. Okay. Well, the, in, in the event, then, uh, you wouldn't be the kind of guy you've given them up. If you walk past a vape shop, vape shop and you saw all this stuff in the window, you wouldn't be interested. No. You'd, you'd walk past it. It's not for you. And similarly, uh, for, for people who don't smoke... Vaping is, 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 there's no reason whatsoever to take it up. But the question has but, but, arisen. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm sorry for cutting across you, but I just want to pick you up on that point, that whilst yep. there are people such as yourself who turn to e-cigarettes to try and get you off the more harmful or whatever uh, traditional cigarettes, there are nonetheless 
a huge degree of younger people who are just taking up vaping for the sake of it. They were never smokers. They never intended to smoke. But for whatever reason, where it's sexy or it's the latest craze going on that they're taking up vaping, that's not a good thing. Alan, look, th- think about it. I, I, I started smoking at 14. I don't know what time you, what age you started. But uh, it, that was back in the old days. Now, it wasn't very much. It was one cigarette a day or two, perhaps. Um, but, but that was way back then. Um, there are still young people who want to taste and try things, who want to taste alcohol, who want to try drugs. But these these kids today now have an alternative if they want to try cigarettes. They have an alternative uh, and a much safer alternative. John, you can't be actively encouraging people to go out and vape. I mean, you know. I'm not actively encouraging them. I'm saying, I'm saying that a kid of 15 or 14 uh, will try these things out, as we did. That's a, that's, I'm not encouraging anything. Um, but if they try them out, isn't it better that they're trying out an e-cigarette than, than the real thing? OK, gentlemen, we must leave it there. John Mallon of Forest Ireland and Fianna Fáil TD Paul McAuliffe uh, joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. If you want to text us, you know the number and the email address. We'll try and get through as many of those as we can before we leave you at 11 o'clock. A referendum to replace an article of the Constitution referring to a woman's duties in the home will likely go ahead next year rather than November as promised uh, by the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman. Difficulties in agreeing a wording for a replacement article and fears a referendum campaign could lead to diverse... divisive debates, I beg your pardon, about the definition of the family and gender issues had led to a growing expectation the vote would be postponed. Catherine Cox is Head of Communications and Policy with the Family Carers Ireland and joins us uh, to discuss this. Catherine, thanks for taking our call. Um, Is this code for it's unlikely that it's ever going to happen or will we actually see something happen, albeit delayed until next year? What's your view on it? Um, We are hopeful that we will see this happen. Um, and I think it is what's more important than the date is getting the wording right for this. So whilst we are disappointed it's been pushed out um, to early next year, we are hopeful that it will go ahead and that public society will have the time that they need to discuss this and consider the wording. So we welcome uh, the fact that the Minister has said it will go, uh, will take place early next year But as I said, what's really important is that we get the wording right for this referendum. And what would be the the proposed and correct wording from your perspective that you would like to see enshrined? So we would like to see, I suppose, the state recognise care in the home, family and the community. Recognise the value of that care, but equally important, put an onus on the government to support that care. Um, and I think that is really, really important. Our constitution is vital. Um, it's vital that the value of care is recognised. Um, and for us, that's care in the home and, as I said, care in the community mm-hmm. as well. We know, you know, the work that family carers do is undervalued, it's unrecognised and it's unsupported. So by placing this in the constitution, we believe that will lay a good foundation for us to continue to lobby for care to be adequately supported so that everybody who is a family carer or indeed care in the community can be done safely and adequately resourced. Just because it's enshrined in the constitution doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to ultimately change. I mean, I'm sure you probably saw 
Kitty Holland's piece in the Times this morning uh, about family carers and a lady called Emily Tyne. It's um, mm-hmm. it's it's heartbreaking to read, and that I suppose is a microcosm of what is really happening in this country when it comes to family care. It, it is, Alan, and actually we were involved in that piece with Kitty, and again, you know, we have said for so long carers have been taken for granted. They have not got the support that they need. So much so that family carers are fighting for early interventions. They're fighting for financial support. If we take, for example, the carers allowance, it continues to be means tested, which means only one in four family carers actually get that financial support. So whilst the the change in the constitution will not change that overnight, what it will do will place a value on care and recognise care. And from that, as I said, we believe that will lay a foundation for us to continue to lobby firmly for care in the home and the community to be adequately supported. So um, this is the start of something. It won't, I suppose, change carers' lives overnight, but we believe it will give them the recognition they deserve. Um, And from that, we will continue, as I said, to lobby so that care in the home and the community is truly valued. It's not enough for our politicians, our government to say to family carers, you're doing a great job, we value, we think you're great. We need to see that put into action. And we need to see, for example, in the upcoming budget, we need to see care adequately resourced. We need to move away from Mm -hmm. means testing for carers towards needs testing. If somebody is providing 24-7 care for a loved one, they should be supported to do that financially, but also through services. Time's against me here, but I want to ask you this question. I mean, ultimately, Mm -hmm. everybody should have the right to be cared for at home if they wish or if they wish to go into a nursing home. It's their choice. Looking at the situation that's prevailing at the moment and the context of that article and so many other ones, are there people, do you believe, living at home, being cared for by carers, usually a member of the same family, who are not getting the level of care that they should be getting, not the fault of the individual looking after them, but by virtue of the fact that there isn't enough resources and help to bolster the help they are getting from a family member? Absolutely there are, because we know of many family carers who reach burnout, who reach crisis point, because they're not getting respite, for example. They have no break from their caring role. They're expected to do it 24-7. Carers need respite. They need early interventions. They need transition periods for their loved ones to be able to access residential respite as and when they need it. None of that is there. And as a result, our state is failing family carers. Family carers are doing their very best but they cannot do it unless they are supported. And that's why thousands of carers, unfortunately, do reach burnout, come to us, you know, in need of emotional support, financial support. Um, They cannot pay their food bills. They're isolated. Depression, anxiety has crept in, all because they are not adequately resourced. We must leave it there. Catherine Cox, Head of Communications and Policy with Family Family Carers Ireland. Thank you for joining us. That is where we leave it this Monday morning. We're back with you again same time tomorrow, a little bit after nine. Until then, for me, Alan Cantwell, good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from nine on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.